Welcome back to Equitable Banks, More Bank for Your Buck podcast. Um, our fifth episode, Intro to Commercial Real Estate. I'm joined with Phil and the one and only Adam Lammers. Welcome, Adam. Thanks. Glad to have you. Um, we're going to talk a little bit at the beginning of this um, about Adam. This is his first time on our podcast, and uh, he's been uh, with Equitable for some time, but his uh, banking journey... Um, travels many years back. And so Adam, just uh, bring us up to speed, bring our viewers up to speed on um, your your banking career journey. We'll start there. Well, I started banking in college. So 28 years ago, I started as a teller and I've been through a progress of different uh, banking um, journey, I guess. I went to new accounts, went to personal banking, did mortgage, did ag lending, uh, and uh, ended up doing commercial. And I've been with Equitable for about 10 and a half years now. Ag lending. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, if I remember right, you're from Ainsworth or Atkinson? Ainsworth. Ainsworth, yep. Nebraska. So up in the Sand Hills. Where were you an ag lender at? I uh, was a credit analyst for uh, ag lending for U.S. Bank in Omaha. Actually, we did a lot large feedlots and a lot of, um, uh, I guess, commercial feeder type business. Sure. Now, Full disclosure, my background's in ag lending, too. Mm-hmm. Until I came to Equitable Bank, I was predominantly an ag lender working with strict ag lending banks. And I found the transition to commercial real estate really enjoyable because mm-hmm. it's, in some ways, to me, it's it's simpler than agricultural lending because, you know, you, it's, it's more black and white with what's the cash flow. You've got a lease in place. You've got rents you're collecting, whatever it might be. Tell us about your transition. How did you, how did you go from an, an analyst for large ag underwriting mm-hmm. to a commercial lender? Well, that's kind of a, a double-edged sword, I guess. They moved my department to Denver, and then I was uh, either going to move to Denver or get a divorce. So I ended up <laughs> <laughs> deciding to uh, switch gears and uh, found choice. myself a commercial real estate uh, job in Omaha. Um, I ended up at the old Omaha State Bank at that time. And then I uh, ended up at First Westroads Bank where I met Doug Nogard, our commercial, our, our current market president in Omaha. And uh, I worked there for five years prior to coming to Equitable. So in commercial real estate, which, you know, when I think of the Omaha locations we have, really heavily centered in commercial real estate, just because that's what your area supports. I mean, there is agriculture in Omaha and the surrounding communities, but Omaha is this thriving, growing metropolitan area where commercial real estate lending is, is really the bread and butter, I'm assuming, a lot of the banks in Omaha. Talk a little bit about the appetite for commercial loans, the different types of commercial loans you see, because the commercial loans that you and Errol see in Omaha are a little bit different than that than we see here in Grand Island, a smaller metro area. You've got larger customers, uh, maybe some more complex type situations in terms of the properties they're buying and the way they're structuring the credit. So so bring bring our guests up to speed a little bit about what you guys have got going on in Omaha from a commercial real estate perspective. Well, every customer is different, as you would know. I mean, everybody wants commercial real estate because they want that passive income, you know, that mailbox money that they're not working too hard to get every every month and then they also want something to be able to pass on to their kids as well it's a really good inflation hedge as you know um, we're kind of in um, inflation talks all the time today with inflation at over eight percent and uh, so people gravitate towards it and they 
think it's kind of sexy. And it is kind of nice because with that passive income, you get to leverage other people's money to make more money. You know, if you're getting a 10% return on that building and you're paying 5%, you're earning 5% on the bank's money and you're earning 10% on your own money that you're putting in the deal. So it looks really good on paper, but uh, there's a lot of uh, information that you need and need a team around you to make sure you're making a wise decision. Not every real estate deal is a, is a great deal. If you look at what's happening in uh, Detroit, you know, Detroit's giving away homes. If you can prove that you can uh, fix it up and, and you can look at that as a place of return where there's not a lot of demand, or you can look at places like Omaha that doesn't have the high highs and the low lows, but you have a consistent return on your money. Let's say I've got a business, whatever it might be, and, I, and I've never tiptoed into commercial real estate. And I come to you and say, Adam, you know, I've saved up this money. I've been working really hard, saving my money, and I, you know, I've got my 401k or whatever it might be. And you know, that's a good diversified source of wealth for you know, long-term wealth building. But I really want to do something different. I like the idea of having an investment that I can touch and see and feel. You know, some, for some people, the stock market seems very ambiguous. You know, I've got my stocks. Well, what does that really mean? The pieces of companies, but I don't feel like I'm an owner in that company. Whereas if I buy an apartment complex or a self-storage unit, or maybe an office space, whatever it might be, I can see it every day. I might drive right. by it on my way to work. It's, it's tangible. It's there for me. How does someone even get started in the process of buying that first commercial real estate property? Cause I've had someone tell me, you don't make your money when you sell it. You make your money when you buy it. So part of this is finding and identifying that right property and buying it correctly. As a, as a banker, how can you help your customer start down that path? I like to set them up with good commercial brokers. I like to set them up with good property managers so they can ask questions and they can learn from them. Um, I'm just a piece in that cog, but, uh, you know, I try to set the expectations, you know, People probably at that, that point in time have already bought their first house and think it's the same process for them to, as buying a house, and it really isn't. You know, usually we want more money down. They don't have the fixed 30-year rate, um, typically. I mean, we do have other products that could get you there, but uh, they need to know the difference between the two. You, typically speaking, we do a five-year fixed deal on a 20, 25-year AM, uh, depending on the project. Uh, depending on the age of the project. They need to have those expectations sent up first. But I think we should explain to our listeners who are new to commercial real estate because you know so much of what drives the investment decision-making process, if you're going to take on a project, whether it's a, a retail building or an apartment complex, whatever it might be, the first thing you need to ask is, aside from price, well, what's the cap rate? Because a million-dollar property, when you look at the property, boy, that looks like a great property for a million dollars, but maybe the cap rate's only 3%. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And we should probably explain that. It, that's like a P-E ratio when they're in the stock market. It's the price of the building compared to the cash flow it brings you as that percentage. So it's no different than buying a CD. You, you put in $10,000 and you expect a 3% rate to have it for three years. Um, that's how I would view a cap rate. Um, a cash on cash would be, all right, how much am I going to put in a down payment and what am I going to get back based off of that down payment by leveraging my bank financing? So for an example of that, just for round numbers, because that's how my brain thinks, million dollar property, 7% cap rate. That means you're going to get $70,000 net income. So after you collect your rents with adjustments for vacancy and losses, 
minus all your expenses, if you paid cash for that building, you would have $70,000 at the end of the year for your 7% cap rate. Correct? That's correct. Correct. And then there's, in a commercial real estate, everything's uh, based on a square foot basis as well when you're looking at the property. And you want a broker to make sure that your property is the size and so you're not overpaying for a property that they're marketing one way or the other. And then you want to also look at their books and verify that everything is legit because you might not know that they're managing it themselves. You might not know that they're mowing the lawn and there's added expenses. If you take it over, that doesn't bring you that $70,000 a year for what you're buying it for. So that's why you need a good team around you when you're buying commercial real estate. Well, really, it's no different than looking at a stock. I mean, it, you shouldn't, you know, unless it's GameStop or something like that, that you just need to buy, you know, because that's how that seemed to work. But you, you really need to do your due diligence on the front side. You just don't want to go buy the first property you find and fall in love with. I mean, there's there's a lot that goes into this purchase before you even go to the bank and say, well, this is what I've identified and this is what I'm going to buy. I mean, you should really take the time, like you say, to work with that team you put in place around you, mm-hmm. work with the broker. Right. Let's take a look at the books. I mean, if if you're looking at a project that they're not willing to show you their P&L, their profit and loss statement on the property, run the other way. Right, right. And you, you bring up a good point. Um, solid financial reporting is really critical when you're analyzing an, an asset purchase, possibly. Um, and there's varying degrees of quality with regards to financial statements. And so for, for viewers out there that are thinking, wow, I really want to understand um, – understand how this property is performing. Um, easy ways to do that, uh, speaking into that would be, you know, getting copies of leases, making sure that um, the, the revenue that the financial statement is representing is actually um, represented in those leases. I think is, a, is a, an important part of that, kind of depending on the, on the, the, the property itself. If it's a single family home, you, you've got one tenant, one family, one lease. Uh, but if you've got uh, a commercial building, you're going to have uh, commercial leases in place. Uh, typically, those are five or ten year leases. And really understanding those those make a, a really important um, aspect of of understanding how this is going to perform over time. What are the escalation clauses in that? Right. Um, what are the renewal options on the back end of that? What is that tenant responsible for with regards to um, triple nets, common area maintenances, those types of assessments is, is the, is the property owner currently covering a lot of expenses for tenants or are the tenants covering those themselves? Is that represented necessarily in the financial statements? Um, and, uh, there are varying degrees of, of, um, uh, sophistication with regards to those reporting. Um, you bring up a good point yeah, about vacancies in there. When you look at a multifamily property and you see a lot of vacancy, you might want to take another look at deferred maintenance. Did, mm-hmm. did they fix everything up? Is the people moving out because they're not taking care of the property? Um, because you see a lot of times in these marketing brochures that uh, they're maybe under market rents and they have a high vacancy. Well, they, they make it sound like a good property management company can take this over and your property is going to be worth more in the long run because you can bring those rents up to market. You can get it full and it's going to be worth more and you're buying it initially below market. 
you just got to be weary. You got to have somebody that go goes in and knows what issues it has. Does it have heating and air problems? Does it have, is it separately metered uh, is another thing. You want to make sure that the tenants are paying for a lot of those things, what you mentioned. Um, I mean, there's a lot of variances that you can run into. Yeah. Well, and, and a lot of that speaks to a, a multifamily property, which when, when I think of commercial real estate in our market, the vast majority of the commercial real estate is non-owner occupied multifamily residential real estate. Now that that's a lot of words basically to say an apartment building or a fourplex or whatever it might be. And with varying types of real estate comes varying capitalization rates, the, the amount mm-hmm. of money you're going to get paid. And, and as a rule of thumb, the more work the property is, the more risk you have in the deal, you should get paid more, no different than a right. stock or any other investment. So if you're, if you're buying a, you know, maybe a, a, an under-occupied commercial real estate property where, like you say, we need to get rents up to market, it needs a little love, needs some fixing up, we need to get it fully occupied, you should be buying that at a much higher cap rate than, you know, I always think of, uh, you know, some of those really low cap rate properties we hear of, the, the Chick-fil-A's, the Starbucks, they've got ironclad 20-year leases, but they might only be paying a 4 or 4.5% cap rate. So I think really it's it's doing that due diligence on the front side is, you know, what kind of risk are you willing to take? How much work? Because it's passive income, but a lot of these properties are anything but passive. You're going to have a lot of work into it to get your money out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think people need to understand going in that the, the different types of commercial real estate there are and, and how you're going to get paid mm-hmm. on each of those types. Because, you know, to me, what sounds really easy is, well, I'm going to find a, a single tenant property with an ironclad 10-year lease, and I'm just going to sit back and wait for the check to hit the mailbox. But I think if, if COVID showed us anything is that some of those ironclad leases, when push comes to shove, are anything but ironclad. And, and I know for the multifamily landlords, the government came out and said people don't have to pay rent. And, right. and I can't imagine what that would make me feel like if I've got a 40-unit apartment complex and all of a sudden the federal government came out and said, well, your tenants don't have to pay you. You still have to make your mortgage payment, but your tenants don't have to pay you. So I think it's when we talk about that, it's going into building your portfolio of commercial real estate. That's why when you talked about leverage, it's so important because leverage really is what's adding risk to the deal. Could you talk a little bit about? Sure. A lot of people want to put less money down on these, these and use other people's money to make them more money, which in theory is a great idea. But you look at the current environment we're in where in interest rates have been climbing. Let's say five years down, down the road, you try to redo your, your loan and you can't increase your rents to the point where it makes the payment. Well, it's gonna have to come out of your pocket, but if you would have put more money down up front, your payment would have been enough to be covered under this new um, rate environment that we have. You just have to be careful. It, I mean, every scenario is different. I mean, if you have a really good uh, personal financial statement currently and can make those payments, you wanna make that risk. I mean, you can work with your lender to do that, but you're probably not going to get as good of rates and terms unless you put more money down. Let's talk a little bit about that, Adam, too. You know, so some of our viewers aren't in real estate investing right now. They're thinking about it. They're on the sidelines. They're kind of watching. Um, their experience, as you said, is I've bought my house. Mm-hmm. I've had three or four houses. I'm used to kind of the mortgage um, process. And on uh, a primary residence, that that thirty-year mortgage, um, pretty cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. It's it's a thirty-year 
fully amortizing term fixed interest rate the entire time. And, you know, I think that that is one of the significant areas of change when you're looking at um, non-owner occupied real estate as an investment um, in a non-mortgage product because there are mortgage programs for those investment properties um, up to a certain number and based on your personal capacity to, to service those payments and have your debt to income in line. But by and large, uh, a commercial loan, an in-house you know, commercial loan, usually has a five-year term. Mm-hmm. And it's usually amortizing. So the, the method of calculating your monthly payment is typically between 20 and 25 years, unless you want it to be shorter. Um, and that really changes the game from a financing perspective. Um, talk into that a little bit so our audience really understands then what happens after five years. What does that do to cash flow when you have to go from a 30-year amortization to a 20? Talk a little bit about that. It mainly be like a 20, 25-year to a, you know, a 15-year or 20-year after that five-year uh, period. But you, it's basically you just meet with your lender again, you, which actually is a good exercise because we want to make sure that you are bringing your tenants up to market rents by that time. Um, and if you're not, we will just have that conversation because we want you to succeed, then yeah. we succeed. Now, we don't, we're not out there just for a transaction. We, we make money when our customers make money. And to us... I mean, it's more of an education um, period, but rates could change in that five years. And, you know, we kind of look at those numbers. We look at the futures market. We, we try to give you a heads up if things are going to happen. That's why it's good, important to, to work with a community bank because you are not just a number. You know, we're going to walk you through the process um, because we're in it together. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and... When we talk about an inflation hedge, in theory, you, you've bought your commercial property and you locked in. When you bought it, you bought it at a 7 or an 8 cap rate, whatever it is. In the day you buy it, the day you close in your loan, you've got that five-year fixed rate. You know what your cost of funding on your project is for five years. Mm-hmm. But in five years when that resets, in theory, mm-hmm. if rates are higher, it's because we've been in an inflationary environment. The value of your property should have appreciated to keep up with inflation, as well as the rents you could potentially collect. Now, whether that's from residents living in your property or whether it's a commercial tenant. And when we talk about those leases, that's why it's important to understand those leases. Because if if you've got a five-year fixed rate, but your tenant has a commercial lease in place with a 10-year rate, without escalators, without built-in bumps, you have fixed your cost without fixing your cost of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's one of those added risks that, you know, coming into a project blind, you might not see, but working with a commercial banker that has your best interest at hand, you have a relationship, they can point out some of those potential pitfalls along mm-hmm. the way. Because if in five years, your rate goes from 5% to 8% because we've stayed in an inflationary environment, whatever it is, but your rents don't raise with that in order to meet the new payment guidelines, you're going to really set yourself up to fail from the get-go. Mm-hmm. So, nope, you're right. You're right. And I, Adam mentioned, you know, commercial real estate brokers, the knowledge that they have in, in the way that those leases are written, the contract language that needs to be in place, but also um, city um, 
code ordinances with regards to certain types of tenants. So let's say you have, you know, a two or three story building and it's office, retail, kind of combined and the, the the main floor is empty. Your your top two floors are are full of of office uh, companies that have their employees sitting there doing their work daily. But you want to put uh, a medical practice on the main floor. Well, there's going to be some specific parking parameters that are going to be associated with that specific type of tenant that the city's going to require X number of spaces. Well, if you have a building that doesn't have the type of parking that you need, we've run into this a lot of different times, you'll never get that tenant. And if you never had that conversation up front with a broker that really analyzed that for you, you invested in an asset, paid a premium for it, and anticipating this type of tenant, and that first floor will sit empty because you can't ever put them in there. Or you're battling with neighbors to beg, borrow, and plead, can I get parking easements and those sorts of things. So um, again, uh, to our to our viewers, you know, gleaning off of experiences that your lenders had, that your your brokers had, your, your attorneys seen, um, to just make sure that even what you hope to come from a property can even happen. Nor those are things that we'll, we'll work through. I wouldn't mind talking about debt service. Let's do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of times people don't understand what we're looking for when it comes to the amount of money we expect the property to make versus how much their payment is. You know, for instance, if their payment's $1,000 a month and bringing in $1,000 a month in rent, they're at a break even, they're at a one to one. We usually like to see them at 125 to one, 1.25 to one, which means they're bringing in 25% more in in rent than they are in debt service or above is what we want to and people don't really you know when they're coming from the residential world they look at debt to income solely when they're looking at buying their house well and and that margin of safety is that cuts both ways one it's there to protect the bank and our investment and giving the money for the property but it's there to protect the owner too because quite frankly if you're buying a property where the debt service on it is one-to-one or below, you are completely betting on capital appreciation of that property because it's you, you've put your money in, your down payment in, and you're taking nothing out of it on a monthly basis. That's that's not what I would call an investment. Right. You don't have any money to put repairs and maintenance into the building to improve the building to increase that appreciation as right. time goes on. So 125, I think that's a really important metric for people to look at. And again, $1,000 month payment, that means you're bringing in $1,250 a month mm-hmm. after expenses, after taxes, after insurance, all in. That is the cash in your bank account at the end of the month to make that payment. And that, that's, that's margin of safety. So mm-hmm. you, you're taking something out of your investment. You have that money to put back in the property. Because one of the things that I always hear a lot of people say, I love my commercial real estate for the depreciation. Mm-hmm. And depreciation, it's, it's a tax thing. It's something that you get to claim on most commercial real estate. It's a 39-year life for depreciation right. against that property. And it's, it's a non-cash item. You get to write it off against the income of that property. But we all know that there is actual physical depreciation in these properties. There's windows, there's HVAC units, there's roofs. Things go wrong. That money really should be set aside for those capital improvements 10, 15, 20 years down the road. That's why the tax code is written yeah. that way to give you that benefit. Right. 
And that's something that as a lender, we're going to be asking, you know, some of those questions up front. How old's the roof? How old's the mechanical systems? Um, have you walked the property, you know, inside and out? And it, for multifamily, that gets hard. You know, if it's a 30-unit apartment complex to be able to say, yeah, I've been in all 30 units, you know, and so sometimes you, you don't get that luxury. Um, but, you know, understanding those, because those are going to be your primary largest line item expenses. But for that debt service coverage, we're also, as a lender, if we're prudent, we're, we're calculating uh, a maintenance reserve into that those expenses, depending on the data we get, we might allocate more for a maintenance reserve percentage of total income because we know there's going to be some significant outlays coming coming in the next three to five years. We're going to look at uh, vacancy percentages, what's typical in those areas in that asset class and historically then what have their vacancies been. And we're going to use some common sense to get to a number, but that's also going to be calculated when we're looking at debt service. And then management. Adam talked a little bit about, well, I'm going to self-manage this property. Great. Mm-hmm. But if something in your life changes um, down the road and you can't do that or you default and we have to take over the asset, we're going to have to hire a management company to do that. And so that's, again, in our underwriting piece, we're going to calculate a, ma- a management fee as a percentage of total revenue, uh, rents coming in, and that is going to be part of that debt service coverage 125 to one um, as well. So I think our viewers need to understand some of that. Go back to the tax advantages to be able to take the depreciation, which helps um, your overall income. So you can start out with a single family home, but you might have aspirations of going to multifamily, having an industrial building. Another tax advantage would be the 1031 exchange that you can get. So maybe you're getting closer on depreciation. You end up selling that property. You end up working with a, a title company that they will escrow the money, but you have to claim two other properties, at least when you do that, that you're considering buying and close on that. Then you could take, you don't have a capital gains tax on those funds because they were put with a third party and then put into the new property. And then you just increased your property. You got a nicer, more than likely a, a nicer investment that cash flows even better than before so it's a progression right and, and a lot of times you have customers come in and they they want to roll that money like you say mm-hmm. they, they bought a hundred thousand dollar single family home they've had it for 10 15 years whatever it might be they've paid down the debt and it's appreciated at the same time so what was a hundred thousand dollar home is now a two hundred thousand dollar home now if they sell that like to your mm-hmm. point say they've depreciated fifty thousand of it and they sell it for 200000 Well, you've got to pay long-term capital gains tax on $150,000, which mm-hmm. by today's standards is a pretty big chunk of money. Yep. Or to your point, you identify other properties. You can take that 200000 and you can roll it into a new property so long as you spend all of that $200,000. And you can spend less. You can do a partial 1031 exchange, which is way above my pay grade. I'm not an expert on partial 1031 exchanges, but I do know that as long as you're spending the same amount you're selling it for or above, you have a very clean 1031 exchange to keep that equity ball rolling into your next project and generating a higher return on your initial capital investment. And the 1031 exchange, I mean, that that was a hot topic here the last year. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was serious concern that that kind of that program was going to be eliminated, was going to go away. And so there is always, you know, 
a risk to in in strategy when influences, whether it's economic or um, legislative changes happen that eliminate those types of programs that allow you basically to roll um, profits of sale of real estate into the next project without having that that capital gain taxable event um, that still could go away. Mm-hmm. Yep. We don't know. Right. We're at the mercy of the government. Yeah. A little bit. A mm-hmm. little bit. When, you know, we talked about debt service. That's one thing we as lenders look at. What's the debt service? What's the cash flow of the property? The other thing that I always think of with commercial real estate is leverage because that's, that's really, to me, that's the secret sauce that makes it a really great investment. That, that takes it from an average investment to a, just a, a tremendous investment, really. Because what we like to see in a perfect world, 30% down payment. You're buying a million-dollar property. You've got $300,000 in cash. That gets us to a 70% LTV. And I think it's important for our, our customers and our clients and our listeners to understand that even though you might find a situation where you can get by with a lesser down payment, 10%, 15%, whatever it might be, is it really the best investment decision for you? What happens if we do have a market correction? What happens if we do have an issue with a tenant? You don't have margin of safety built into your investment in a way that you can recapitalize that debt if you would have an issue. Talk a little bit about, in a perfect world, when a customer comes in to buy a property, talk about that loan-to-value, the leverage, and how that really works to amplify their investment. There's a lot of different ways we can tie into their existing equity, let's say they had another commercial property that they have it paid off free and clear. We can tap into that equity in order for them to buy another building that cash flows them as well. But those are few and far between. It just depends on their situation. But it's really beneficial when they don't have a lot of cash on hand um, in order to do that. But on the other hand, us as bankers make sure that they can service the debt. We look for a primary source of repayment, which is the rents of the building. And then we look for a secondary source of repayment, and that would be them as a guarantor. And, uh, you know, why I say a guarantor is another thing is with commercial real estate, typically you don't have the property in your name. You'll want it in an LLC or, or some sort of other entity to have a corporate veil in case somebody gets hurt on the property they don't want to come back at you they'll just go back have the ability to go after the llc itself it's just some added protection um it's one of those things that we will coach them with when they come in um but to answer your question about leverage um like i mentioned earlier they are actually making money off of our money when they're buying it but we want to make sure they don't get into a situation where rents aren't meeting up with their payments and they're in a position where they have to come up with money out of pocket or sell something in order to make our payments. Well, it, it goes back, there's, there's, a, there's a right amount and there's a wrong amount. Too much leverage could put you in a really bad spot as a banker and as a borrower, but just the right amount of leverage gets you that amplification mm-hmm. of your cash on cash return. I mean. All of us, if we could borrow money at 5% and put it in a CD for 8%, we would borrow as much money as they would possibly let us have. And, and you can think of commercial real estate the same way with some caveats. You know, you really need to be cognizant of those those leases, those terms. And that's where having that, that personal relationship with your commercial banker really comes into play because they can sit down, they can work through the numbers with you, talk about how can we get the best return on investment for you and for the bank. Mm-hmm. Right. 
and we run calculations for our customers. Um, we also uh, have subscriptions to uh, the same information that appraisers have. I mean, that's at least Equitable does. Uh, and we try to find comparable sales. We try to make sure that it's something that we would do personally, because if it wasn't, we treat it like it's our money, like we're a partner in in the deal with you. Um, otherwise, we have no problems telling you if it was my money, we, I wouldn't do it. Right. Because really, it, I think a commercial banker is is it's part of your team, as you said before. You, you should have a good relationship with your commercial banker. You should be on a first-name basis. You should know who they are. You should probably have their phone number and be able to pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm looking at this property. What do you think? Because if nothing else, it's another opinion. You can use them as a sounding board. They're going to know the ins and outs of your business, right. hopefully as well as you do, and understand your cash flow situation. And, and, and really, if that's a good investment, a prudent investment for you at this time. And, you know, community banking, there's a lot of, a, a lot of lend, lenders in this space. And, you know, we can talk from our vantage point and equitable banks perspective. Um, but each bank, each financial institution is going to have their own appetite um, for real estate lending. Um, their views on leverage, their views on cash flow, their views on loan to value, guarantor strength, secondary sources of repayments. Um, and so it, for those that are getting into the game, you know, having different, um, inputs, asking multiple different lenders, you know, how does this work in your institution? I think it's important for lender or for investors too, to understand, you know, how does equitable or how does XYZ bank that I'm going to go and, and, and use for this purchase, how are they going to function, not just today, but going forward at, at that five-year balloon? When that, when that term matures, what is that going to look like? What's that process going to look like? Um, where does that put us? Right now, the, f- the five-year yield curve is steeper than the 10-year. So the expect, future expectations of interest rates is over the next five years, they're going to keep going up. Then they're going to come back down. But if you have a five-year term, there could be some problems in that, you know, and so what, what flexibilities does the bank and the lender have to offer to get past that five-year um, balloon piece, I think is something that we talk to clients um, a lot about. Um, something that I've, I've found myself with, with investors that want to get into doing more is they're transitioning from their first home into their second, they're, they're right sizing for their either whatever it is, growing family needs or whatever. And they still have that 30 year mortgage, the rates still in the, the low threes, high twos, somewhere in there, because they were smart and refinanced when they could, and they can afford a, the next home. And their, their plan is to keep that first home as a rental. So you're seeing a lot of that happening right now. Um, because they were able to lock that rate in so low and it's fixed for 30 years. They have no interest rate risk right? and they don't want to give up that future income stream. You know, what we really haven't touched on is new construction either. Um, you know, usually we, we can do um, a product that's a one-time close where you can do an interest only period and then you go into a principal mm-hmm. and interest payment type method. A lot of banks will only do, a construction loan on the onset and then you have the interest rate risk on the back end and with today's rate environment i think that's a a nice niche product uh that we do carry 
Um, and, you know, another thing is, is we try to help you with cost overruns. Uh, we kind of try to set expectations with, with uh, price of materials today. We need to kind of set that ball in motion. Yeah, and cost of labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. The time frame to get that done is, is to get a new construction is just longer than it was two years ago. Well, and to circle back, it, it all comes back to your relationship with your lender. And, and one of the things that make me proud to be employed by Equitable Bank and the team here is that I believe we have great relationship with our customers. We know our customers' business, and they have a level of comfort and trust with us that we're guiding them down the correct path for making these investment decisions. You know, whether it's a new potential customer coming in off the street or someone you've worked with for 10 years, I believe that whether you're working with Equitable or any community bank, you can find that that point of contact, that relationship to really help bolster your chance of success mm-hmm. in commercial real estate investing. You know, whether that's multifamily, storage units, heck, maybe you want to buy a, uh, you know, a hotel or something along those lines. And, and like Errol said, every bank's going to have different appetites for that based upon their market and the size of the bank. But but really it comes back to that relationship. Mm-hmm. So I think to, to wrap up that commercial real estate, it, it's complex. There can be a lot of different variables at play, but you've got to put your team in place to help you navigate through, whether it's your commercial real estate broker, your commercial lender, your attorney, CPA, insurance provider, there's a lot more that goes into it than just buying your first home. Right. And I think our, our potential customers and our clients need to understand that, that you know we're not here to try to beat you up when we're asking you all these questions about well, what's the income of the property, what's the maintenance on it. We're here to help set you up for success because when you succeed, we succeed and the world keeps going around. Well done, good point. Well, thanks for joining us on uh, this episode of kind of the intro to commercial real estate. I want to thank Adam for joining us. You're welcome. Adam's a wealth of knowledge. And uh, um, to any any investor that's thinking about getting involved in buying more real estate, Adam, I would start with him. Uh, but Phil and I uh, appreciate you being here, taking time out of your day. Thank you. I want to thank our audience for joining us today on More Bank for Your Buck and looking forward to our next podcast together, Phil. Sounds great. Thanks, Errol. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.